You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Diabetes affects populations differently. How is the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of diabetes in an Asian population different? Joining us to discuss the unique challenges of diabetes within the Asian American population is Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism at John A. Burns School of Medicine of the University of Hawaii in Honolulu, Hawaii, Dr. Richard Arakaki. Dr. Arakaki, welcome to ReachMD. Uh, thank you, Dr. Edelman. What's the current data for Asian Americans with diabetes and those also at risk for diabetes? The, the Asian American uh, population uh, is you know, a minority group, and their rate of diabetes is much greater than the general U.S. population, and the estimate is between uh, perhaps 1.5 to two-fold greater than the general population, and that puts us up between 10 to 14 percent uh, across uh, the population in general. Well, let's talk about some of those unique characteristics. Right. The uh, Asian population in, in general, when we just talk about Asians, you know, we, we somewhat uh, gloss over the fact that there are subgroups within the entire Asian um, uh, group around the world who live in the U.S. who uh, are, are relatively different among themselves. Uh, as, as an example, I'm Japanese-American. Uh, I'm third generation. And um, I've been, you know, uh, in the U.S. for a long time. And I probably are very Americanized and similar to uh, yourself. Uh, at the same time, we have a lot of new immigrants, immigrants from Southeast Asia, the, the Vietnamese, the, the Laotians, the Cambodians, who are newly uh, transplanted, who uh, do not speak very well, and also uh, speak English, excuse me, and also are, are relatively thin and, and, you know, have had difficulties uh, with, uh, you know, adjusting to the diet of, of the U.S. And then you have others who are perhaps in the U.S. longer than I have been, who have three or four generations. And, and they are the Japanese, the Chinese have been here uh, in the U.S. Uh, since the 1800s and such. And so you have a diverse population for which an individual physician may see them, see them differently as by name, but treat them as all Asians. And, and some are thin, uh, yet their rates and risks are, are just as high. Uh, another uh, unique aspect of the um, approach to the Asian uh, patient uh, is really their diet. And, and their diet is primarily rice-based. Uh, there's a lot of carbohydrates in what they consume, uh, whether it's rice as itself or rice in, in noodle form or, uh, or people like to consider that as sushi and such. Uh, that uh, will contribute significantly to, to hyperglycemia. Uh, primarily postprandial hyperglycemia seems to be what we tend to encounter uh, in this uh, population where the, the rice is the main staple. And, and that then lends us to you know, a unique aspect of approaching their treatment uh, as well. Richard, uh, let me tell you an observation I've made um, over the years uh, working in San Diego where we have a lot of Vietnamese folks, a lot of Filipinos, mm -hmm. that they seem to be thinner 
as you just mentioned, but they also seem to fail oral agents quicker and need insulin sooner. And I would just say this, they're, they're in, this is a real generality. They're tough to control on insulin. They're almost bouncing around like people with type 1 diabetes. So what, is any of that reality? Yes, yes. and I, I think, you know, again, it, it would be still have to be individualized uh, in terms of who uh, will do what you've described, which is get onto insulin sooner. But, but uh, without question, even though they're smaller in terms of the BMI, you know, how much they weigh and how tall they are, uh, they, they have higher resistance. There are, uh, there's lots of data to show that they have increased visceral adiposity, uh, the accumulation of, of the metabolically deranged fat cells uh, around in the abdomen, and they are much more resistant even though they're smaller. Uh, and so they may tax the beta cells faster and, and more so for which uh, their progression to insulin needs or failure of oral agents is, is much more rapid, and then they will require more demand of our time uh, to, for treatment. It will require more demand of their time uh, to go ahead and take care of their diabetes. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, let's talk about some of the other specific challenges for Asian, Asian Americans. Let's, let's talk about some of their, their different uh, cultural and ethnic beliefs. You know, this whole thing about Western medicine versus Chinese herbs is, I know that's got to be tough when they come to the States. Right. And, 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 and not only is it tough, it's also difficult to get from them. Uh, many of them um, uh, feel that uh, they don't necessarily need to tell their Western doctor uh, that that they go to the 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 uh, town. Um, uh, I guess uh, we would use the term herbalist uh, for remedies that they think are just minor, and and diabetes, you know, is relatively quiet. It's a silent you know, disease, and and so they don't feel if it's not causing them any pain, they don't feel like they need to see the Western doctor. Mm-hmm. So they, they already there. You know, it's a challenge for us to bring them in to for their monitoring, their surveillance, for their complications prevention when they feel that they're not sick. And, and so why should they see the, the modern doctor every three months, every four months to take care of their diabetes? So, so that's already an issue. The other issue, uh, or many of the other issues, are still related to language. I mean, you know, if you have uh, four patients in your clinic and one happens to be Vietnamese, a newly uh, recent uh, uh, immigrant from China or Taiwan, and, and also uh, perhaps even a, a Japanese or so. You know, their language issues will be different. Uh, they may still be Asians as we categorize them, but they may speak different languages. And to communicate with them, that may be also a difficult consideration. We would like them to bring their family for potential interpretation and such, but some of them may not necessarily bring uh, that uh, with them. And so that's what makes it uh, a little bit more difficult. The, the other is, is their cultural beliefs uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the consideration, the approach. Uh, you know, um, uh, they will say yes and nod to anything that you and I as, as physicians of authority would tell them. Uh, but then when they leave the office, they may not translate that. Sounds like, my, sounds like my teenage daughter. Uh. <laughs> they may not you know, necessarily take what we tell them to heart. And then when their family asked them, well, what did the physician say? They said, I don't know. I don't <laughs> quite understand them. You know? and, and, and that's, I think, also the difficulties that we have 
with dealing with this diverse population uh, of Asians. You know what? I mean, this just sounds like an expansion of the typical problems we see in any diabetes clinic. Do patients hear you? Do you say it in a way they understand? And do you give them information they can take with them? Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Arakaki. We are discussing diabetes prevention and treatment in Asian Americans with diabetes. Are there specific concerns in the treatment of the Asian American with diabetes? Uh, yes, and, and uh, the, the first concern with um, uh, a somewhat of a cultural and, and a belief background is really their their approach to Western medicine. I mean, you've already mentioned that you know many of them uh, will perhaps use traditional herbs, uh, traditional uh, materials, uh, even acupuncture to to try to take care of themselves. Uh, but there's still some suspicion in terms of you know uh, uh, what is this pill for and what will it do. Uh, the other thing is that because of their smaller size and the fact that we really don't have very good data among the uh, of clinical trials. Uh, we don't know what kind of response they would have with the usual doses that we may offer, uh, you know, our other patients. And so that uh, a small amount of, of, uh, of, of a sulfonylurea uh, may be all that may need, uh, but um, which would potentially cause hypoglycemia when we give them an average amount that we usually give to all of our other patients. So there's a little bit of that suspicion. And if they have a very bad reaction to it, they're more likely to stop it and not use it anymore. And so we lose ground when they have that initial suspicion in general and then also uh, potentially have a, 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 a poor response uh, because we're not sensitive to what they may do with that particular medication. Talk about prevention within the Asian American community. Both you and I were on the diabetes prevention program, and of course there's worldwide yes. uh, programs as well. Right, and and the 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 uh, the, the number of, of of higher risk uh, Asians uh, are greater than the number of, of diabetic Asians, and so we see worldwide, you know, the the, the, the epidemic just getting greater for us, uh, and so uh, there is a, clearly a need to prevent diabetes uh, within uh, this community as well, and. Uh, the diabetes prevention program, you and I worked with on that for, for many years, and, and diabetes prevention program had a smaller cohort of Asian uh, Americans in it, uh, about 140 uh, individuals. It's small compared to you know, 3,800 in total. Uh, and they equally responded uh, to a diet uh, and exercise intervention uh, we call lifestyle, intensive lifestyle, and also to metformin. Uh, and so uh, it appeared that at least within the small core, given metformin and uh, uh, given the lifestyle intervention, they did very well in terms of decreasing their development of diabetes. Uh, subsequent to that, you know, other studies uh, from Japan, uh, also from India, uh, they also show that they can lower the development of diabetes uh, through lifestyle intervention, and they also uh, use metformin. And interesting enough, uh, the dose of metformin used uh, in the Asian countries' prevention programs were much lower. They used 250 milligrams of metformin 
uh, twice a day. And some individuals in the Indian study did not tolerate that. They had actually more hypoglycemia. So you see this, this, this difficulty in response or understanding of the response to these medications. But clearly the, the prevention uh, has worked, and, and uh, that needs to be promoted. We know that uh, these are interventions that could be applied probably worldwide and certainly within our community here in the U.S. Uh, that we need to uh, target as well. Thanks, Richard. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu, Hawaii, Dr. Richard Arakaki. Dr. Arakaki, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.